And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Tuesday, six days to go until the election. It's the reporters. Tim Horton's Smile Cookie Week is back, starting September 13th. For one week, the iconic chocolate chunk cookies topped with a pink and blue smile will be available at Tim Horton's restaurants across Canada. 100% of the proceeds from each smile cookie will be donated to local charities and community groups in each restaurant's neighborhood. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, the Smile Cookie Campaign has raised more than $60 million for charities, hospitals, and community programs across the country. Grab your smile cookie from September 13th to 19th only at Tim Hortons. So, I like to tease you with what the fun fact of the day is going to be. And it's an interesting one today. I'm not going to tell you yet. I won't tell you till the end. So, you can't look it up on Google. You can't do any of that. All right. Here's the, the fun fact is going to be on this. The power of incumbency on a seat-by-seat basis. So, in your riding. If there's an incumbent, what chance does she or he have to be reelected? It's an interesting question, and the stats are pretty interesting. And it's kind of double-edged as well, because here's the other part of the story. It's not to do with, it's incumbency in a different way. The country has a very interesting record in electing or not electing former premiers to a position in the House of Commons, to member of parliament status, going from provincial to federal. Now, over the history of our country, there have been some really powerful premiers who had big names on the national stage. But were they able to leap from premier to prime minister? That's the question. How many times has that happened? Don't look it up. And when was the last time? Don't look it up. Just guess. Jot it down. Now, that's not the conversation for the reporters today. And you know our two reporters have been with us through the campaign on Tuesdays with some really interesting insights on how your journalism works during a campaign, what it faces, how it deals with the different situations that are put before it. Some of them, you know, we may not think of very often, and perhaps we should, because a lot of what we end up reading or seeing is based on the reporters and what they hear and see during a campaign. So who are our reporters again? Rob Russo former bureau chief for Canadian Press in Ottawa, former bureau chief for the CBC in Ottawa, and a former uh, Washington correspondent, as well as many other points along the road, for Canadian Press. Rob's a friend and a great journalist, and one uh, one I've certainly always trusted, and who will be involved again next week when the CBC gets around to doing its election night broadcast, Rob will be one of the key behind-the-scenes people 
for the CBC's coverage on election night. I've had a number of letters, by the way, of people asking me whether I'll be uh, involved in the CBC's uh, election night coverage. Actually, for the first time since 1972, I won't be. And that's okay. I'm fine with that. Um, now, the other reporter who has been with us since the beginning of this campaign is Althea Raj. And you may recall that I, last week I told you she was just moments away from signing a new contract. She'd been the bureau chief for Huffington Post in Canada, as well as worked at various other networks and news organizations. She's now the new national columnist for the Toronto Star, and she hit the ground running right after the announcement was made last week. Uh, she's been tracking a number of the uh, campaigns, a number of the candidates, and the leaders, of course. So we found her out on the campaign trail for today's program. So let's get at it. The reporters on the Bridges election edition, right? Here we go. Let's get at it. Uh, Rob is in Ottawa. Althea is, well, she's in Toronto somewhere. Uh, having been on the NDP plane for the last, I don't know, day or two, and uh, is now going to switch over to the Conservative plane. She's going to try and get a taste of everybody this week uh, in some uh, some different fashion. So let me um, let me actually start with Rob. For, for journalists like Althea who are racing around the country with all of various deadlines and pressures that that involves, uh, what's the biggest challenge for journalists this week, the final week, the final days of a campaign? What's the biggest challenge? Well, there are all kinds of there are physical challenges. This is when people start to get run down. It's, it's a difficult job physically. You're you're up uh, long hours. You get very little sleep. You don't eat very well. Uh, you're often in close proximity with a whole bunch of people. <laughs> and even in pre-COVID time, you risk catching all kinds of bugs. Uh, so there's that. There's the physical problems. Then there's the, the uh, myopia problems. And, and this is not going to be the case in El- uh, with Althea because she's jumped around from campaign to campaign. But you get... Uh, you, you get close to, to uh, the situation, you get close to a party. You might not know what's going on with the other ones all that well. There's great communication between you and your bosses back home. But I remember cases where, like in 2011, uh, Michael Ignatieff had uh, some pretty good crowds and, and he was getting them riled up with his rise up um, uh, kind of exhortation against Stephen Harper. And there were people on the road who actually thought that the liberals were doing very well, just based on what they saw in terms of the crowds and the little enthusiasm. And it was completely disconnected from the reality of what was happening really across the country and in other parts of uh, other parts of the, the, uh, the voting region. Uh, so, so there's, uh, it, it depends on how much time you, you spend out there as a, Bureau chief, you wanted to rotate people through as much as possible in order to avoid that from from happening, but it, it it's it's uh, it's that that steel tube phenomenon that that we were talking about in our first chat, where uh, you don't really get a sense of what's going on on the ground sometimes. Althea, um, I know you're racing from one place to another, but what would you like to add to uh, to what Rob just said on the on the challenges? 
Well, I'll say that um, I only heard half of what Rob said because one of the challenges is having really good internet access. (laughs) And I don't at the moment, even though I'm in downtown Toronto and I'm tethering from my cell phone. Um, But I think what I heard Rob say was that you kind of get into like the vortex of the one campaign that you're uh, you're in and um, sometimes it makes you more favorable to that campaign or sometimes it can make you less favorable to that campaign but but that wasn't what i because i'm going from campaign to campaign you said that that would not affect me did i hear that correctly is is there something important that i missed okay yeah um i think that the physical toll is probably one of the greatest ones because you really are operating on a little sleep like sometimes like three four hours a day is like oh that's really lovely um but it's mostly from like a, a coverage point that you're hardly talking to any real people um you are just talking to the other reporters and the people on the plane and then you're going to an event but you sometimes have so little time oh we lost her there um She'll pop back on. As she said, she's tethered from her phone to her laptop to the telephone to what have you. Um, uh, I'll jump in here, Peter, yeah. and say that there are, there are other challenges that, that that weren't there when I was on the road, which is now now a long time ago. But uh, it, the demands on journalists now to be multi-platform, multimedia weren't there before. And, and so the workload has gone up. Uh, as 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 the rest and and uh, recuperation time goes down, you're you're you know I, I was a uh, started as a print reporter and and bashing out stuff regularly f- uh, for the wire service trying to trying to update reports, but uh, you know on top of that now you're expected to file uh, video, you're expected to file audio often. You're expected to do regular hits if you're a broadcast reporter. You're expected to tweet. Uh, so the, the, the workload has gone way, way up. What about the, um, are, are you there, Althea? Not yet. She, I think she's reconnecting here. So she'll, she'll join us again. But what about the issue of, um, predicting? There seems to be, I don't think there's any pressure on journalists to predict, but somehow they, they and I, you know, I recall this from my own day, you have this tendency to, uh, to kind of let prediction fall into your reporting, Um, not in a, you know, not in a blatant overt way, but it just tends to kind of slip in there every once in a while. And uh, especially so in the last week. Yeah. uh, You know, it's just, we, we so often get it wrong. Uh, and often the, the, the predictive nature that our tendency that slips into our reporting comes as a result of polls, polling. You know, a lot of us are slaves to polling and they get it wrong. They have gotten it wrong a lot, uh, over the last little while. Um, and, and part of that is because we believe in national polls. And as we've said before, the, 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 a national race in Canada isn't really a national race. It's really a regional race. It, it, things are happening in three or four parts of the country. Uh, and, and that's it. I, I know that, that, that people don't like it, don't like to hear it very often because there's 338 ridings. But really, it's only about 50 to 
80 ridings that are in play. That's where the race is happening. Uh, and, and so if we're dependent on, on national polling, uh, uh, we're, we're, get, we're going to get it wrong. Um, so, I mean, I always tell people all the time, uh, don't, when you're going on any kind of show, a local radio show, um, when you're, you're, you're doing hits for, for news network, when we were at, at CBC, don't get sucked in to making a prediction. Don't do it. There's nothing in it for us. We're not columnists. We're, our opinions aren't really uh, valuable that way. And even if we were columnists, I think that we really risk looking dumb if we uh, if we get it wrong. And a lot of times we get it wrong. Okay, I think Elsie is back with us now. She's figured out some magic way to to patch into this. If you are Althea, we're talking it's about pull- the phone. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> we'll we'll take it. We'll take it. We're talking a little bit about. You know, the dangers in the last week of, 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 of trying to predict what the outcome is going to be, uh, especially from this uh, cocoon that you're in on the bus or the plane or where have you, um, uh, and dealing with polls, the constant parade of polls that, that, that come out. And we've seen, you know, three or four already this week, and it's only Tuesday. Um, give us your thoughts on, on, on those two areas. Um. I think when the contest as it is now is so close, uh, there's no point in reporters trying to um, predict who's going to win. We frankly, we have no idea. And a lot of it will come down to ground game. So I think we should avoid it completely. I think even as a columnist, one should avoid it completely. You really have no, you don't know. Um, And the parties only tell you basically what they want you to think, which is that they can win just about everywhere they go. Um, Sometimes they'll be honest and actually admit that they won't win um, in a particular riding, but you know, that's usually when they have like no shot at all. Um, The polls leads coverage in some ways in terms of how seriously you treat some of the parties. Like I think we've spoken about this before, but the NDP doesn't get the same level of scrutiny of their campaign platforms and costings than the Liberals or the Conservatives do um, because we don't spend as much time going through it and the nitty gritty of their policies. And frankly, even if there's a political party, um, like the whoever's running second uh, tends to not get the same level of scrutiny as the front runner. I think the polls also leads the type of kind of strategic questions that people in the Ottawa bubble care about, but I don't know that real humans care about, about, you know, if your party gets the second um, uh, highest number of seats, would you try to form a coalition with X other opposition party or, um, you know, what's your response to, strategic voting and, you know, what would it mean for your political future? Those types of questions instead of uh, policy questions and programs or uh, values-based questions that voters are probably most interested in. You know, one of the things I used to try and do when I was, uh, when I was on the planes um, back in the seventies and eighties was that I would try to, 
you know, because you, you really do get closeted in this bubble and you don't really have any sense of what's really going on outside, even when you go to rallies because they're all, you know, committed people, organized to be there and cheer and do whatever. The believers. Believers, yeah, exactly. But I would try and um, in, the, in that little time off that I'd have in a day, I would try to, to walk the neighborhood of the hotel uh, that, that I was in and, and knock on a few doors and just uh, try to talk to people. Now, that, that didn't happen often because it just simply is rarely time. But you would find out very quickly <laughs> that what they were talking about is not what the leaders or their people were talking about. It didn't matter which party. Um, that there was just there, there was a disconnect between what was happening on the planes, what was happening in the houses. Uh, and I assume that's still the case. I'm not sure for the most part how you get around it because things are tied so specifically to the clock and there's so much travel involved in each day that um, the reporters on the planes don't don't have as much of a, an opportunity. Um, Rob mentioned earlier uh, the impact uh, COVID has had on the way these campaigns unfold and the, and, and the way reporters react to them on the road. Now, I appreciate you've only been on there for a couple of days, but you do have comparisons to go with. This isn't your first rodeo, as they say. And so what is the impact? What, what, what are you seeing on that? And I say two things because I want to go back to the thing that you said about the knocking on doors. I think one of the th- things that has drastically changed, frankly, from the 70s and 80s, Peter, is that you have the internet and 24-hour news. And, like, I look at my broadcast colleagues and they have absolutely no time to file. Like, the NDP has given us and sometimes, like, 25 minutes to file. That's, like, 25 minutes to regurgitate all the tape that was just gotten from, that you've just received in a press conference, trying to craft your story and spending it to usually Toronto to get vetted. That is really not a lot of time. And there is no opportunity to go knocking on doors or to see anything other than like the the hotel room where you're supposed to be filing. Um, I think COVID, it's a really interesting question. You know, I joined the NDP team about this time uh, in the last election in 2019. It was right after the English debate. Um, Jagmeet Singh had had a really good debate performance in, in that campaign as well, and he was kind of running on a high, and if anything, the NDP was um, a little disappointed that they didn't have the funds to help support his newfound popularity with advised. But Jagmeet Singh, much like um, Justin Trudeau, is one of these uh, very... Um, these types of people that gets their energy from the crowd. And in 2019, there were crowds everywhere. You know, there was music. As soon as the bus arrived in a writing uh, campaign office, they would blare this, the NDP campaign music and Jigmeet Singh would bounce, like literally bounce out of the bus and start dancing with the crowd. And you got a sense of momentum. It's really hard during COVID to gauge whether what you're seeing is just, you know, following the COVID safety protocols and that's why there's nobody at the events or if it's that there is like a lack of interest and a lack of momentum we had with the NDP team, the largest, I guess, so-called rally, like a group gathering in a park where there was a little more than 50 people. And that was one of their biggest um, events so far. And you can tell that Sigmeet Singh is just not, he doesn't have the same level of energy. So it feels like there is a lack of momentum um, on the campaign and he says 
he doesn't feel that it's different, but you, you can tell that it feels, it feels really different. Right. It's ironic because Trudeau in some ways is, is the opposite. He, he's getting momentum from crowds, but not ones he's organized. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The, the uh, protesting crowds. Yeah. Uh, Rob, yeah, yeah. Rob, what's your take on this, this angle? Um, it, it, it is um, strange and, and it does, I think, have a material impact on, on the uh, dynamics of a campaign and on the dynamics of a leader. I think the people around Justin Trudeau were saying after week one and week two that he's suffering because he isn't drawing from that energy of a crowd, um, that uh, he, he really does need it. Uh, and, uh, you know, before COVID, they used to try to get him out on the road quite often in, in order to, to, to get that. Uh, but that, that tells you, that's kind of maybe what makes me want to pivot into, into this notion, uh, pivot back to being on the road. Um, you really do get a sense when you're a reporter on these uh, campaigns of a winning campaign and a losing campaign. There is a bounce in the step of everybody on a winning campaign. And that goes from the leader and the people around them to the people who are handling the bags. Um, you know, I, I remember in, in 1993 when it was clear that Kretzian was going to, going to win and Kim Campbell was going to lose. And that was fairly early in that campaign um, that, that there, there was a bolt of energy, a dynamic force that seemed to go through a plane. And there was uh, a kind of rigor mortis that set into the conservative campaign there. And I've noticed that on other campaigns I've been on since, uh, that there, there is a palpable feeling of, of a winning campaign. Uh, it's, again, that's one of those things that I needed to kind of guard against uh, when I was on the road, because it does, that influences your, your reporting as well. Um, uh, but it's there, it's palpable, and reporters are going to begin to sense that this week. They'll begin, they'll begin to feel it. Uh, um, it's a dangerous thing to, to, try, to try and gauge, but it's there. Well, you know, it, it's I certainly there. I agree with that. Yeah, but it, I mean, it, it, it's true when things seem to be clear and you get an indication from some of the polls when they are clear. But right now we seem to be just looking at an extremely tight race. But I I totally agree that when, when uh, you know, it, it, <laughs> we used to describe it as a, a stench that rolls over the campaign that is not going to do well. Uh, it, it just feels like a dead plane. Um, people are not, you know, not energetic in any level, and things are the opposite on on the plane that looks like it's it's going to end up winning. Um, but I don't know. You, Althea, you say you you totally agree with that, but at the same time, this one this one doesn't look that way because it seems so close. Yeah, and I really think that. But it's going to depend on ground game, and they don't. They themselves don't really know. I mean, I will say, in 2011 with Michael Ignatius, I mean, they told him while in the in the last few days that he was also going to lose, um, and he, it felt like we were like at a funeral for the past. The last three days felt like a funeral. <laughs> Um, in fact, at one press conference, Michael Ignatius cried. It was really quite bizarre. Um, like, I'm not weeping, but like tears. And you were like, 
and I don't understand what's going on here. Um, in 2015, I remember I did the same thing again, where I spend like basically 48 hours with each camp. It, sometimes it's a little bit more than that. Um, just because of you know, like trying to figure out, uh, leaving one camp to get to another camp. Um, but Tom Smilcare, we had an event and basically like four people showed up and you, you can tell, um, that, you know, with the campaign that has momentum and the one that doesn't. Uh, in 2015, the Liberals were literally dancing in their airplane as we went from um, Vancouver and flew back to Montreal for Election Day. Um, in 2019, they were a little bit more stressed, but you could also tell they were feeling pretty confident. Um, I didn't get that sense on the Conservative plane. Uh, and that was... a a contest where the Tories won the most number of votes, just not the most number of seats. So I don't know that we'll be able to feel it um, in this campaign, but when the race is overwhelmingly going in one direction or another, that is, I, I believe it. You can tell, I mean, they know. And so they're jubilant. And when they're jubilant, they can't hide it. Sometimes you can get an indication from a, a change in message um, that something mm-hmm. is going on in terms of the way they're perceiving their their chances like I, I i found it a bit striking yesterday when the conservatives uh you know they had a positive announcement to make uh but they turned their news conference on that announcement 95 percent into a you know almost personal attack on trudeau which you know i looked at that a saying, personal attack i think you can say it yeah yeah it, <laughs> it wasn't you know, it a was contrast a, attack yeah, it was a personal attack. Attack. It was literally personal exactly so yeah. i wasn't sure what was going on there were they trying to take another you know a last ditch shot at, at 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 the liberals because they're worried about their numbers or were they trying to take uh, a shot that was mainly directed at the growing numbers of people who seem to be supporting uh, the People's Party. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to win the election. They may not even win a seat, but they're taking votes away from somebody. And uh, that may well be the Conservatives. And so if the Conservatives are trying to get those votes back in the last minute, attacking Trudeau on a personal level may do it. Rob? Yeah, I think that... Uh uh, to the extent that Mr. O'Toole's campaign has succeeded, it succeeded in, uh, from the beginning in disarming uh, and pulling the pins out of some of the grenades that were launched at Andrew Scheer the last time. And so he has moved closer to the center on a whole bunch of issues. Um, you know, he's got a climate plan. He's pro he's pro choice. Um, so all of these pins have been pulled out of grenades. Uh, well, last night he started he started to lob those grenades. And that suggests to me that uh, the move to the center has, has cost him some votes and he's got to go out and get them uh, in order to, to put himself over the hump. But I don't know that we should read anything more than that into it right now. I, 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 again, uh, it, we're not at that phase. Clearly something has changed. Clearly he needs to, to, to make a change in tactics. But the, the, the signs that I'm talking about are the leader is becomes less um, available, uh, more curt in his responses or her responses. The, the people that you go to for information about the campaign become less voluble. The, uh, the, the phone calls back to headquarters aren't returned as quickly or aren't returned at all. Um, those are the signs usually of, of something 
that that's going wrong and that, and that the campaign is headed in a direction that it cannot turn around. And, uh, you know, there are a couple of examples with Stephen Harper that I find remarkable. In 2004, he knew he was going down and he essentially just stopped campaigning. We all recall that that last weekend as the campaign where, where Mr. Harper just went home, right? I mean, he, he kind of he folded it up. The 2015 example, I, I think, is remarkable as well because it shows the, the maturation of Stephen Harper in, in that he knew six months before that campaign that, that he was very, very much unloved and unliked uh, and that he had a tough, tough road to hoe. And every day during that campaign, and we all remember it was very long, it was over 70 days, he would ask, has it turned around? Has it turned around? Has it turned around? And it's the people around him would have to say, no, it hasn't. And yet he matured enough that he knew his job was to hang on to as many seats as possible to get as much uh, a representation in the House of Commons as possible for his successors so that the Conservative Party that he formed would be viable. And he went out there and did this game show thing uh, that was part of his campaign and did it with, with some aplomb. Uh, he's not exactly Mr. Chuckles, but as much enthusiasm as he could muster in order to try and maintain the facade of a campaign that was still viable. You know, I, you and I are going to have to disagree about 2004 because I thought he, and still think, that he took that last week off because he thought he had it in the bag and that that was a terrible mistake. Well, that he, you know, that, uh, and some of his people felt uh, that way too, that, you know, you when you, you've got an opportunity, you don't let your foot off um, the throat of the opposition, as they say. Um all right, uh, last point uh, for this conversation, and Althea, I hope you're still with us and we haven't lost you off. The, off yeah, yeah, phone. I'm still okay. here. <laughs> uh, and, and this, uh, I'd love your thoughts on this because I, this is all, this has been, and it's not just an election campaigns, it's always been kind of an issue, but when you read a, a newspaper story uh, and quite often a column in a newspaper, which you'll now be doing, um, it doesn't exactly match with the headline. Um and I'm trying to get at how, first of all, what's the process? And second, what, how frustrating can it be when you're the columnist, you're the writer, and you suddenly see your, your story being flagged in a way that, that you didn't intend it to? I mean, I felt that way about, you know, John Iveson is a friend of all of us. He was a columnist of the National Post. And I, I felt, that, and, and he's very opinionated, as columnists are supposed to be. But um, I, I felt over the weekend that some of what he was writing was not reflected <laughs> in the headline um, that was uh, put on top of his story. But to explain the process to me and how frustrating uh, it, it can be. Um, so I think it happens with all, like whether you're writing, um, a news report or a column, I will say it depends, you know, I've worked with a lot of different outlets. It depends, um, where you work. Some outlets would like you to suggest a headline. Um, some outlets don't ask you to suggest a headline. And so the editors will decide, um, what they think the headline is. You'll often find a different headline in print as you will in a digital story. 
And sometimes in a digital story, you'll see different headlines. Um, online publications and people who run the digital um, news page often test headlines to see what um, makes people click on the headline. So they do A-B testing. Um, they'll have a different uh, headline on Facebook, for example, um, than they might have on the actual uh, news site. I don't have a problem with the different headlines. I think I would only complain if I feel that the headline inaccurately reflects the content of the story or if obviously the headline is wrong. Um, that's only happened to me a few times, frankly. Usually I think people who um, do a certain job are better at their job than I am at doing their job. And I trust them to you know, write something that is accurate, but yet clicky and engaging. Um, and uh, leads to more people reading your story. Because at the end of the day, that's that's what we all want, no matter where we, where we stand. Um, but it can get absolutely frustrating if you see something that um, you feel doesn't reflect, especially as a columnist. I would say doesn't reflect your your point of view and mischaracterizing mischaracterizes the column that you've just written. Uh, Rob, we'll give you the last word on this. You've uh, well, we you've been there, so uh, give us yeah. uh, your thought. Yeah, I, I, I often wrote headlines when I was at, at uh, the Canadian Press. We don't know in John's case if it was an editor who went too far or, if, uh, or, or something else. Uh, I can tell you what the net result is. The net result is that uh, readers are disappointed initially that they didn't get the story that they thought they were going to get because most readers read headlines. They don't read the body of the story. So initially they're disappointed. And then secondly, they feel manipulated. Uh, and, and that's when you're in danger of, of losing readers at, at newspapers, uh, as often is the case there, there is supposed to be a separation between the editorial section of the newspaper and the, and the reporting section of the newspaper. Uh, and sometimes they bleed over uh, at the editorial ranks. And, and that's also a danger. I, I firmly believe that people who own papers have the right to put their editorials, their, their opinions, publishers, uh, they have the right to do that on the editorial page. That shouldn't bleed over onto the reporting page. We all know that discretion allows for choices to be made, but reporting should be factual. Um, and, and so therein lies a danger as well. Um, so I, I'd be interested in hearing from John as to whether or not, this, uh, not he thought this was an honest mistake. Um, but I do know that the, the net impact is, is one that uh, can, can cost us readers sometimes. And to be fair, before we close out, I, I should say it's not just a print issue. It can be a television issue as well. I can, I can remember more than a few nights uh, on the National where the headlines would either promise something or, or worse, ask a question in the headline that's never answered in the, in the body of the program. Um, and that could be equally frustrating, I'm sure, uh, to viewers in that case. So th this isn't just a print issue. It, it's kind of a journalism issue that you, uh, you either overpromise or you promise something that, in fact, you're not saying or doing. Well, one of Russo's rules at CP was we don't ask questions in headlines. We answer them. So don't ask a question. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another good difference between print and uh, television. But, <laughs> but that's a very good question to put on social media because you want to drive engagement. You want people to comment and share and engage. Yeah. The world has changed. There's no question about that. 
Uh, listen, we're going to let you go, uh, Althea, because we know you've got to uh, you've got to pack and hit the bus and change planes and. I'm change. already packed. You're I'm already the packed. expert that I am, but I do need to get to the airport. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, it's been great to talk to you as always, and uh, we'll try and figure out what we're going to do next week, next Tuesday, uh, with the two of you, because okay, who knows where great. you'll be and. Uh, and, and and what time it will be when we finally track you down. But uh, Rob and Althea, thanks very much. It was fun. Thank you very much, Rito. Thanks, Rob. Stay healthy. Stay healthy. You got it. That's the, that's the thing, for especially for those reporters who are out there uh, traveling the country covering this election. Okay. I promised a fun fact on incumbency, and I'm going to deliver right after this. Starting September 13th, Tim Hortons Smile Cookie Week is back. From September 13th to 19th at Tim Hortons, 100% of the proceeds from all smile cookies purchased will be donated to local charities and community groups across Canada. In the last 25 years, you have helped us raise over $60 million, and in 2020 alone, Smile Cookie Week brought in $10.6 million while helping over 500 community organizations. You can participate by grabbing your own smile cookie at Tim Hortons restaurants across Canada from September 13th to 19th. This is The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. Okay, you're back. You're listening to The Bridge. It's the reporters on the final week of the election campaign. And this segment, I've tried to do a, a kind of fun fact about election um, data in the throughout this campaign and this is one of them you're listening to the bridge on uh, sirius xm canada channel 167 canada talks or you have downloaded the bridge podcast and uh, whichever it is we're happy you're with us and we appreciate you joining us all right incumbency you know unlike most jobs becoming an mp doesn't uh, you know, it doesn't require any experience in the field. Anyone can run. Anyone can win. Lots of people run and win without first serving on, say, even a city council or a school board. But once you win, you actually have a pretty good advantage. In some cases, it's a huge advantage. In the last election, the last federal election, 289 incumbents ran for re-election. Of that 289 figure, only 47 lost. That's an 83% success rate. That's pretty impressive. On the other hand, the other question I asked at the beginning of today's show, if you're a premier, a former premier, with lots of political experience, there's no golden ticket to federal success. Since 1867, only 40 former premiers have become members of parliament. Only two, only two, this was the question, only two have become prime minister. Former premiers becoming prime ministers. Who were they? Well, of course, you remember Sir Charles Tupper. He was premier in Nova Scotia from 1864 to 1867. And he became prime minister in 1896, but for only 69 days, the shortest term in history. 
Sir Charles Tupper from Nova Scotia. Well, Sir John Thompson, also Premier of Nova Scotia at one point, only for a couple of months in 1882, but he was Prime Minister from 1892 to 1894. There you go. How many of you knew either one of those? Questions. Well, I'm pretty impressed by the smarts that are exhibited every week in the letters I get from the Bridge listeners, so it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of you got those without looking them up. Right? That's key. Okay, tomorrow, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. Thursday, your letters, your comments, your thoughts and questions on your turn. And on Friday, good talk, Chantelle Bear and Bruce Anderson. You don't want to miss this last few days before the campaign. It's a close one. It's going to be interesting. It could come down to your vote. All right, so if you didn't vote in the advance polls, You've got options, including on Election Day. So keep all of that in mind. All right, that wraps her up for today. The Bridge, I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.